welcome to Sharper Iron. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for listening to the program on KFUO, Christ for You, Anytime, Anywhere. I'm coming to you today with some bonus podcast material to help you sharpen your faith in Christ. So often on Sharper Iron, our guests bring out brilliant insights from the text, but we don't always have time to explore those points fully on air. This bonus material, which we are calling Sharper Iron Back to the Forge, is an opportunity to spend more time with our guests, digging into God's Word even more deeply on topics that are of interest to these faithful pastors. For our initial trip back to the Forge, we've got regular guest, Pastor Sean Kilgo. He serves four congregations in the Northeast Kansas Lutheran Partnership. Pastor Kilgo, welcome back to the Forge. Hey, thanks for having me back. I should give credit where credit is due. The name Back to the Forge, that was your coinage. Oh, great. Now everybody's going to blame me. Oh, well. If anybody has a better suggestion, (laughs) please feel free to send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. As we develop this, hopefully we'll be doing this about once a month with our regular guests, digging into these topics that are of interest to them that come up on air, that come up in their notes that they send to me ahead of time points of interest that we don't always get to explore fully. And Pastor Kilgo, you and I, in our regular conversations, it seems that every time we have a text to study, one of the things that will come up in your notes is the seven attributes of Holy Scripture. And I don't think we've really delved into that on any episode in particular. And so this seems like a very fitting topic to start with today. Give us an introduction to the seven attributes of Scripture. Yeah, so the the seven attributes of scripture are basically just these these seven terms or seven uh, doctrines that are going to describe uh, the nature of the Bible, right? So when we say that the Bible is God's word, well, what do we mean by that term, right? And this is one of these things I think we just kind of assume people know what we mean by God's word. Um, we really shouldn't make that assumption. Uh, and these are really a, a really helpful way to keep this in mind what the Bible is, what God gives it for, what it's doing for us, and how it's working to protect us, to keep us in the faith, to guard us against the assaults of the devil, all these things. And one of the things that we should see right off the bat is that when Jesus tells the parable of the sower, uh, particularly in Luke 8, and he gives the explanation of it, he says, we, we know these parts pretty well, you know, the sower is the uh, the son of man, so is Jesus, and the, the seed is God's word. Luke has this really interesting note that he provides that he says that the, the devil comes and he steals away, he takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So he gives the the purpose behind which the devil is working. So we know that the devil wants to steal God's word from us. But Luke is the one that gives us this little detail that the reason for that is so that we would not believe and be saved. That That's the purpose. And so if the devil can take God's word from us, then that means that we are going to end up in eternal destruction instead of eternal salvation, right? And we don't want that. So how do we guard ourselves against this? That's kind of the question. And what we need to realize is that when the devil is seeking to steal God's word from us, this is normally not a physical sort of thing. The devil isn't going and causing us to, you know, throw all our Bibles on a big pile and burn them or throw them in the trash or anything like that. Uh, The devil is perfectly content for us to have Bibles in the house, uh, especially if we never read them. Uh, But he's also certainly content to have us read the Bible as long as we don't actually believe 
the words that we're reading. And you see this in a lot of like liberal scholarship. Uh, the, the guy that comes immediately to mind, maybe some of the listeners are going to be familiar with him, would be Bart Ehrman. He's a New Testament scholar. He teaches, I think, still at Baylor, um, or at least he used to teach at Baylor. Um, he's written a whole bunch of stuff. And basically, the the fruits of all of his work is that we can't really believe what the Bible says, right? He knows what's in the Bible. He knows these words well. He just doesn't believe them, right? And this goes all the way back the, to the devil's temptation of Adam and Eve. Did God really say, right? And so when, when the devil is attacking God's word in this way, what he's going to be doing ultimately is attacking the various, what we call attributes of scripture. He's going to, so we can just kind of lay those out real quick. Uh, there are seven of them, like we mentioned. There's inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, authority, ethics, excuse me, efficacy or power, uh, perspicuity or clarity. That's one of my favorite words, by the way, and sufficiency. Um, and I have little little phrases. I'm still working on these, but little phrases to kind of help us think about what these mean, little one-line things. So inspiration, Jesus said it. Uh, inerrancy, Jesus doesn't make mistakes. Infallibility, Jesus can't lie. Authority, because Jesus said so. Efficacy, Jesus' words do stuff. Perspicuity, Jesus means it. And sufficiency, Jesus said enough. All right, so, so if you kind of have those in mind, and we'll probably mention those as we come along, the, that's what the attributes of Scripture are. They, they are how Jesus is actually giving his word to us in, in different ways and how they're all working together. And, and the, maybe the picture to have in mind with this is if you think back to the old um, Roman or, or Greek structures where you've got these pillars and you've got this big stone sitting on top of them. Uh, you, you can look this up on like an image search or whatever. The way to think about this, I think a, a helpful way is to think of the very first one, inspiration, that, that Jesus said, that this is God's own words, that that's like a capstone, the capstone sitting on top of this. And then you've got six pillars underneath that it's holding down and kind of holding together as a system. And what the devil's trying to do is tear that whole thing down. And so either he can attack inspiration directly and, you know, pull that capstone off and it just basically ruins the whole system. This is what happened like with the battle for the Bible, for instance, in the um, 60s and 70s with the Missouri Senate, even some years before that. But you can also attack um, the pillars themselves. So if you think about how this structure is working, if you pull one of those pillars out, it's going to stand at least for a little bit because, but it becomes very unstable. So you know, if, if the devil can come along and pull out the pillar that is um, the clarity of Scripture, and this is one we see a lot in our age, and we don't even realize that it's there, that it's being attacked, um, it makes the whole system unstable. And so now the devil can kind of come over and just kind of push on it and topple the whole thing over. And now without even realizing it, we don't actually believe uh, what God has told us, at least not all of it. And, and that's what we want to guard against. So the devil is attacking the word. This is what he's been doing from the beginning. He does it in a variety of ways. And these seven attributes of scripture are one of the ways that when we've got them in our arsenal, when our iron is sharp, we can recognize where the devil is attacking, guard against those attacks. For the attacks that are out there, as you mentioned, scholars like Bart Ehrman, who is, is currently at 
the University of North Carolina. I, I looked it up earlier just because I knew I've heard of him. I've encountered him. And it's always distressing to me in cases like Dr. Airman of men like that who are very clearly intelligent and yet have forsaken the truth because in one way or another, this doctrine of Holy Scripture, what we mean when we say the Bible is God's word, has been attacked. And so we want to guard against that. So we've got these seven attributes of Scripture. You laid them out for us. We're keeping in our minds this picture of pillars and being held together by one in particular, the doctrine of inspiration. And your one-liner, inspiration, Jesus said it. So let's start talking about inspiration, Pastor Kilgo. Yeah, so so inspiration is quite literally the doctrine that these words that we have in the Bible have come from God's own mouth, right? And now, the main text on this, and this is maybe one of the more familiar texts um, and maybe even one of the more familiar attributes, even if you didn't know it was called inspiration, because this is the one we tend to talk about the most, uh, and for good reason. It is, if you were to give levels to them of their importance. They're all important, but this is the most important because if you take this one away, none of the others either can exist or matter. Uh, some of them can exist without this, but they don't matter any longer if they're not actually God's words, right? So the the, the main text on this is going to be 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. And that, that word breathed out is theonumatas. Um, pastors love to talk about this one because it's um, it's this word that St. That Paul makes up, basically. Uh, it doesn't exist in Greek literature before um, Paul comes along and he writes it down. And what it literally means, uh, theos is Greek for God and pneumatos is spirit or breath, right? So it's um, God-spirited. So all scripture is God-spirited and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or perfect, equipped for every good work, right? So th this is kind of the main text on the nature of Holy Scripture. And it's one that actually it, it intersects with all of the, the texts, all the attributes. And so with inspiration, what we're concerned about is retaining this understanding that it doesn't matter where you're at in the Bible, and it doesn't matter who the human author is. All of it is God's word. And so this is something we see a lot. Um, if you're on social media and you have stated something that is controversial and you've quoted something outside of the outside of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, invariably somebody has uh, used this as a as a rebuke. Paul said that, not Jesus. Peter said that, not Jesus, right? So unless it's letters in red, Jesus didn't say it. And this is ultimately an attack on the inspiration of Scripture, right? That it doesn't matter whether Paul penned it or Jeremiah penned it or Moses penned it. Jesus is the author of all of it, right? Um, and the Holy Spirit comes along and he uses men to write these things down, to put ink on paper or papyrus or whatever. But they are his words, right? And so that's going to be the, the thing that holds this whole system together. Um, and it's a, it's a marvelous thing. And so there's this, um, I don't remember where I found it, but there's some, some meme out there 
where uh, there's this guy, he's, it's a little cartoon guy, he's sitting there and he's praying and he says, God, please speak to me. And there's this hand that comes out of the cloud and it just holds a Bible out to him, right? And, and this is the great thing. When we hear the scriptures, we are actually hearing the voice of God, right? And that is incredible that the God who created everything, the God who came into your flesh and redeemed you, who died and who rose from the dead, the God and the Holy Spirit who has come into your body to make his dwelling uh, in the temple of your body, that God speaks to you, right? He's not mute. And that's what distinguishes him from all of the false gods, right? Mm -hmm. Fundamentally. From inspiration, then, you've got two more attributes that really go together and sound familiar and get at a similar thought, but maybe from a different side. Inerrancy, Jesus doesn't make mistakes, and infallibility, Jesus doesn't lie. What are these two? How do they go together? Yeah, so these are usually linked together. Um, they're usually very closely bound to inspiration. Sometimes they're referred to as the perfection of Scripture. So I think Gerhard actually talks about these as the perfection of Scripture as well. Um, and so what's going on here is there are two sides of the same coin. One is talking especially about the author of the text, and one's talking about the, the very words the text themselves. So inerrancy means that the text doesn't have any mistakes in it, doesn't have any errors in it. Uh, so this would be like if I wrote a math book, and I, and I do this with my compliments, I'll take a piece of paper and I'll fold it into a little book, and I'll write on the inside, one plus one equals two, two times two equals four, and I'll write on the front, Pastor Kilgo's math book, right? And I'll hold it up and I'll say, this is an inerrant book, right? Because it has no mistakes in it. There, there are no errors in this book. Um, what distinguishes that from the Bible is the other attribute that's paired with this, and that is infallibility. That even though there's no mistakes in Pastor Kilgo's math book, it cannot ever be an infallible book because I, as the author, am capable of making mistakes. I'm capable of lying. And so these two work together to give us this great confidence in what the scriptures say because we know the author, being the Lord himself, cannot lie to us. Uh, he cannot uh, speak any falsehood to us. Uh, he's not going to try and deceive us. That, in fact, is what distinguishes God from the devil, right? That the devil is the deceiver, right? This is one of the titles that's given to him. And so because he can't do any of that stuff, when he causes something to be written down and they're his own words, those words aren't going to lie to us either. They're not going to deceive us. Now, and, and this is going to intersect with um, perspicuity, but there, there's a good note on this. And I don't, I don't remember if I've got this. Uh, here. Yeah. So Luther has this great quote on this um, because there are times where we look at the scriptures and we're like, well, that just doesn't seem right. And so Luther makes this note, the Holy Spirit has been blamed for not speaking correctly. He speaks like a drunkard or a fool. So he mixes up things and uses wild, strange words and statements. But it is our fault who have not understood the language nor known the matter of the prophets, for it cannot be otherwise. The Holy Spirit is wise and makes the prophets also wise. A wise man may be able to speak correctly. That holds true without fail. It is impossible that Scripture should contradict itself. It only appears so to senseless and obstinate hypocrites. Scripture will not contradict itself 
or any one article of faith, even though your mind, in your mind, a contradiction and an irreconcilability may exist. So it may look to us like there's an error or a contradiction in the scriptures. But that is simply because either we don't understand what's going on there, either from a historical perspective or a grammatical perspective, or because sin has blinded us to it. Right. And that and that's a major point that, that one of the effects of the fall is that we do not understand the the things of God as we ought to. Right. We have to grow into those things. So one of the one of the chief texts on this is actually going to come out of the Old Testament or sorry, out, out of Titus, um, where he says, uh, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. You also have this phrase that shows up, I think, three different times. One's in Samuel, uh, I think one's in Kings, that um, I, the Lord, do not lie or change my mind because I am not a man that I should. Uh, so he makes that direct contradiction between us and himself. And so that's that's infallibility and and inerrancy. With those two particularly, and I know we see this in others as well, but it just stands out right away how these seven attributes depend upon each other. Inspiration, Jesus said it. Well, if that's not true, then suddenly infallibility and inerrancy go away because you don't have the infallible author anymore. And so you you do see how these work together. As we keep going through these, let's take the next two, authority and efficacy. Authority, because Jesus said so. Efficacy or power, this is very technical language, Jesus' words do stuff. Yeah. I, I, I tried to not be too technical, but I couldn't help it there. Uh, so authority is that uh, God's word is the sole, well, this is the language of the confessions, actually, the sole source and norm of all uh, doctrine and preaching and Christian living. So everything that affects us as Christians and as the church, the sole authority on all those matters is God's word. And so this is, you know, kind of the, 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 the parent line, right? Why do I have to do that? Or why can't I do that? Well, because I said so, right? And this is really, in a sense, what's going on with authority, that God, as the creator of all things, God is the one who has given us these gifts. And God is the one who has spoken these words that are infallible and, uh, and inerrant, that those words then carry an authority with them, that uh, and we can think of this almost like a like a legal authority. So when the when we have you know the the law being spoken to us from like a judge or whatever, his words carry a certain amount of authority because of who he is, right? And so the same thing with with God, but just even more so that when God says stuff, it that's just the the end of the conversation. You can try and argue with God, but you you immediately lose the argument as soon as you start, uh, regardless of what we might think in our minds, and so. Um, one of the chief texts on this is going to be, for example, uh, Galatians uh, 1, uh, where, where St. Paul is rebuking the Galatians. We, we know this one pretty well, but I don't think we usually think about this in terms of actually teaching us about the nature of the scriptures. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to one you received, let him be accursed. So no word can ever go against God's word, right? The, God has the final say, period. Like, and, and this is great because Paul's saying, look, even if I as an apostle or an angel from heaven comes and says to you something that's different, they're wrong, right? Uh, because those words do not carry the same authority as God's, right? So that's authority. Um, efficacy or power uh, that, that God's words do stuff. Uh, this We know this from the creation, right? We talk about this all the time, that God creates everything by speaking it into existence. But he doesn't stop with the creation. He continues working in the creation through his speaking, right? So that when he joins Adam and Eve together in marriage, he does so by declaring them to be one flesh and continues doing that even to our day. He declares us to be one flesh. When he goes to bring about faith, he does that by speaking to us. When he goes to sustain our faith, he continues speaking to us. When he goes to forgive our sins, he speaks to us. And especially he gives us pastors to speak to us. And, and Luther draws this out. Uh, we miss it, I think, in the, in the catechism, but it's beautiful. He says that when we hear these words, uh, we should be as sure of them as, as if God himself were speaking to us in the words of the absolution, right? Um, and, and then when he wants to give us baptism, he speaks to us and he wants to give us the Lord's Supper. He speaks to us. So he takes all these things and he speaks them, speaks the reality uh, into existence. And this is the thing is that God's words actually have the ability to affect the reality that we live in, um, which would make sense when you draw back into Genesis again, that those words created our reality to begin with. So the, the idea that they can affect our reality that they themselves created really shouldn't come as that big of a shock. Um, but uh, Romans 1 um, and Romans 10 are two of the big texts on this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then Romans uh, 10, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom, not they, they, whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Right? So, so that these words, this hearing, actually it affects a change in reality. Right. Again, I'm noticing how that first one you laid out, inspiration, really makes such a big difference that these are the words of Jesus. I don't think anybody's going to deny the power of Jesus. But if they're not the words of Jesus, then we've got another issue. So again, these these things go together, and you see how when the devil attacks one, others start to fall. It's, it's all an attempt, as you said, by our enemy to undermine our faith, that saving faith in Christ, which he wants us to have, as you said, through his word. It is his word that does this stuff. We've got two more attributes to scripture. Your favorite one to say, perspicuity, Jesus means it, and sufficiency, Jesus said enough. Yeah, perspicuity is great. I love it when I teach the compliments of this because they all get this glazed over look like I'm speaking gibberish, right? Uh, perspicuity <laughs> is, though, just a fancy word for clarity, that, that the scriptures are clear. Um, and, and so this is dealing especially with the, the idea that when the Holy Spirit in, inspires these words to be written down, 
he follows the rules of language and of grammar. He doesn't speak like Yoda, right? Uh, so if, if, if the Holy Spirit spoke like Yoda, maybe we would have some reason for not entirely understanding what he's saying. But he doesn't. He speaks in clear words. And if they are unclear to us, it's not because the Holy Spirit himself isn't clear. Again, going back to what we said with uh, inerrancy and infallibility, it's because sin has clouded our minds or we simply don't understand the nature of language, right? And this is why uh, we always talk about how it's, how important it is for uh, the, the Lord's shepherds, his under shepherds to study language and the original languages so that we can aid the people in understanding what the Lord is saying to them in the scriptures. And this is a big part of why we do it, because we want the, the more you understand language in general, but especially the original languages in Greek and Hebrew, the more clear these things become, right? They, they become the, the, the light becomes greater and greater. And so this is where we get uh, one of the passages. A lot of people are going to know this one. And when you read the old theologians, this is one that comes up over and over and over with all the attributes of scripture. Uh, and that is Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And I believe it's Gerhard when he's writing about this and he's writing against the, uh, the Catholic apologist. And I think Bellarmine is the main guy that he's writing against in this case that he says that they, they have denied the clarity of scripture saying that it's a, a darkened book. And yet the Psalm says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How can something who is dark illuminate? Right. And this is kind of the, his fundamental argument is like, look, the psalm says that this illuminates. Right. And so it is clear something that's something that is unclear does not illuminate the path upon which we walk. Right. And it does not illuminate our own lives. And so the, it, it's, it's just a beautiful. There's so much in that one little verse that that's great. Um, I've, I've got another little quote from Luther on this. It says no clearer book has been written on earth than the Holy Scripture. And I mean, just that one line, it's so great to to meditate on. No clearer book has ever been written on earth than the Holy Scripture. It compares with other books as the sun with other lights. It is a horrible shame and crime against Holy Scripture and all Christendom to say that Holy Scripture is dark and not so clear that everybody may understand it in order to teach and prove his faith. If faith only hears scripture, it is clear and plain enough to enable it to say without the comments of all fathers and teachers, that is right. I too believe it. And this is, you can hear in this, the, the idea of the faith of a child, right? That when a child hears their parents say something when they're, when they're very little, they just believe it, right? That's why you've got to be so careful in what you say to children, because if you say the wrong thing, they're going to believe it, right? And, th and this is what the scriptures do for us. They give us th this great clarity that we can say, yep, that's it. I believe it. And God be praised. Uh, sufficiency is um, that God said enough, um, that, that we don't need other revelations. We don't need uh, God's word and. There is no and. We have God's word, and that's enough for our faith, for our life, for the holiness of our living, uh, to bring us into the blessed resurrection, all these wonderful things. Um, uh, Luke 16 um, is really helpful here. The, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, they have Moses he, uh, talking about uh, the rich man's brothers. 
Uh, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe should someone rise from the dead. Uh, and that is one of these texts that's just really great in general for the attributes of scripture as well. Um, and then John 20, right, to remember uh, the, the purpose of the scriptures, right, that John puts as at the end of his gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And, and to think about that in contrast with how we started this, where the devil is trying to steal the seed in order that they may not believe and be saved. That, you know, contrasting that, these are written that you would believe and believing have life in his name, right? And, I mean, just thinking through other things that are right there in John 20, Jesus did other things. Those could have been written down, but what was written is sufficient. It is enough that God has given you to bring you to faith. So we've got the seven attributes of Scripture, inspiration, Jesus said it, infallibility, Jesus can't lie, inerrancy, Jesus doesn't make mistakes, authority, Jesus said so, efficacy or power, Jesus' words do stuff, perspicuity, Jesus means it, sufficiency, Jesus said enough. Pastor Kilgo, as we wrap up today, where can we go to learn more about these seven attributes of Scripture? And just bring it home for us. Why is this important? Why should we know these and use these as Christians? Yeah, so maybe the first place to start um, would be to go to Psalm 119. Uh, this is referred to sometimes as the great psalm of the word, and for good reason. Every line of this is talking about the Holy Scriptures and the nature of God's word to us. And if you go and you look in some of the, the dogmaticians, um, and they're talking about the attributes of Scripture, they're always quoting Psalm 119 somewhere. And I guess my encouragement would be, I know that it's long, but it's really beautiful. And so sit down and either read it out loud or listen to it being read, you know, pull it up on a, on a Bible app or something where it will read to you and just listen to Psalm 119 all the way through um, and do that uh, for like a week straight and then see how much clearer the scriptures have become on, on the nature of them, on, on the nature of God's word, that, that God speaks these things to us, that he doesn't lie to us, that these things have power and authority in our lives, that they're clear and that it's enough for us, right? And, th and this is great. And, and to remember that ultimately the reason why God is giving this to us is for a couple of reasons, but one of the chief is that we would have certainty uh, concerning the faith, right? That the devil wants to cause us to doubt uh, that, that we are saved, that Jesus is for us, that we're going to enter into eternal life with him, uh, that the dead will be raised. And fighting against that is the Lord's word itself, right? And, it, and this is something that we forget that the church only has one weapon against the devil, and it's the word of God. But it is such an awesome weapon that we have that it that drives the devil out uh, anywhere we go. And so even Jesus, when he's being tempted by the devil, every single response begins with these words, it is written, Right. And if it's good, I say this all the time, as is one of my little phrases, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us, right? So if it's good enough for Jesus to respond to the devil with, it is written, it's good enough for us to respond to the devil in the same way. And uh, maybe to, to close with this, Luther says this so wonderfully in the large catechism in the preface on why we want to cherish God's word. 
And, and so he says this, the study of God's word is a most effective help against the devil, the world, the flesh, and all evil thoughts. It helps to be occupied with God's word, to speak it and meditate on it, just as the first psalm declares people's blessed who meditate on God's law day and night. Certainly you will not release a stronger incense or other repellent against the devil than to be engaged by God's commandments and words and speak, sing, or think them. For this indeed is the true holy water and holy sign from which the devil runs and by which he may be driven away. If I were to list all the profit and fruit of God's word, which it produces, where would I get enough paper and time? The devil is called the master of a thousand arts, but what shall we call God's word, which drives away and brings to nothing this master of a thousand arts with all his arts and power? The word must indeed be the master of more than a hundred thousand arts. And I think that's a great place to kind of leave this with, with Luther's comments on that. Pastor Sean Kilgo serves four congregations in the Northeast Kansas Luther Partnership, helping us today with the seven attributes of Scripture. Pastor Kilgo, thanks for going back to the Forge with us. That was great. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have questions about anything you've heard on Sharper Iron, a guest or a topic that you would like to hear back to the Forge cover, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org as we continue to sharpen our faith in Christ together. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon.